I'm Allison Kulo. And I'm Doug Wells. Welcome to Mound Money on KPCW. Scores of books have diagnosed the contemporary crisis of capitalism, emphasizing how it has undermined democracy, concentrated wealth, harmed human health and well-being, and ravaged ecosystems around the planet. Such work is important, but focusing exclusively on the nature of the problem risks suggesting that the only viable options are revolution or resignation from the status quo. The book, The Alternative, based on years of reporting for the New Yorker magazine, examines a portfolio of practical solutions to urgent economic problems from decreasing wealth inequality to addressing the climate crisis and creating meaningful jobs. Nick Romeo is a journalist and author of The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy, and joins us this morning to talk about his new book. Nick, thank you for joining us on Mountain Money. Thanks so much for having me. How did you become interested in people working to build economies that are more equal, just, and livable? You know, it's a kind of question I could answer in two ways. Personally, I was living in the Bay Area where wealth inequality is very hard to miss. We have some of the wealthiest companies in the world headquartered right around Silicon Valley. And professionally, I was I was lucky enough to be covering a kind of new areas in capitalism beat for the New Yorker. So interesting new models for both public and private sector initiatives that were broadly speaking, trying to reimagine capitalism. So it was really both personal and professional. I, I was thinking about the topic and then I was also able to explore it as, as an author. You, you mentioned in your book that you want your readers to, uh, to reject the thought of there is no alternative. Um, and give us, give us some examples of some alternatives that are working in other places. Absolutely. You know, that phrase is famously associated with Mark Thatcher in the 1980s. There is no alternative. I, I don't know how, how many readers today will still pick that up. I, I think some will. But even if you've never heard that phrase, you know, I think the attitude is still widespread in America, the sense that, you know, maybe the status quo is not great, but we don't really have many better options. So some of the alternatives I look at that I think are working well are in Europe and, and some are in America. I, I can just pick two and then happy to dive deeper on any of these that are of interest. One is a network of worker-owned cooperatives in Northern Spain called Mondragon. They do everything from industrial manufacturing, like making things like jet engines to um, actually running grocery stores and banks. But the basic feature of Mondragon is that they have a, a cap between the highest and the lowest paid worker of six to one. And they also have really strong democratic governance practices. So there's a kind of direct democracy at work model. That's one interesting feature that I, I talk about in the book. Um, in addition to the Mondragon co-ops, you know, there are initiatives around the world I focus on one in Austria that are, are called job guarantees, where basically anyone who's been unemployed for a certain period of time is eligible and, in fact, is guaranteed to have a job that's created with their input. And it's a kind of public-private partnership where people are trying to solve real needs in the community, but they're also doing work that in some way reflects their own skills and interests. Let's go into some of these examples um, because I do also want to talk about 
in our conversation to what's leading this movement to reform economics education. But let's talk about, as you mentioned, the Mondragon Corporation based in the Basque country of Spain. It's the world's largest worker-owned network of cooperatives. What kind of lessons can be learned from this alternative model? You know, it's it's a fascinating place, and it's a really beautiful place. I, I think there's a reason that they get thousands of visitors from around the world. Um, one of the big lessons that I think can be learned from Spain is that economic inequality has a crucial cultural dimension. So if you, if you spend some time in the town of Mondragon, people are very proud of the cooperative model in the business world, but you know it also extends to things like public schools. Kids learn, as one person told me, to become cooperative people. It extends to social life. How do people enjoy themselves in the evenings? Well, there are a lot of clubs that are organized on a cooperative model where people from a lot of backgrounds mix pretty comfortably. Um, and, you know, I think there's a nice feedback loop where if you have a culture in which people are learning these kinds of values and then you also have a network of businesses, there are over 80,000 people who work at one of these Mondragon cooperatives, both sort of private life and then business life are feeding back into each other in this kind of virtuous circle where people get used to a much, much lower level of wealth disparity between highest and lowest paid employees. So, you know, I really, uh, we just talked about the Basque country in, in Spain. One of the things that I like about your book is, is the examples that you give and having just come back from uh, the Netherlands, I was hoping you could uh, chat with our uh, audience about the story of True Price, which is an Amsterdam-based initiative. Absolutely. Yes, I, I found the True Price movement really fascinating. Um, people may have heard of this under the name True Cost Accounting. It's sort of just a variation on the same theme. The basic idea here is that there are all of these costs, sometimes these are called externalities, that are not included in the price of goods. So this could be, if you think about the kind of classic Econ 101 example, you've got an apple at the grocery store, and it could be everything from the carbon footprint that was involved in transporting that apple to your grocery store, to underpayment of workers, um, to even kind of ecosystemic effects caused by maybe pesticides or, you know, in the case of something other than an apple, let's take something a little bit more um, unhealthy. So let's say you're eating a huge amount of processed food. In a few decades or, or sooner, some of these costs may show up in a national healthcare system if people are getting sick because of what they're eating. True Price says, look, all of these externalities that are currently not being priced into goods should be. And furthermore, we can do it. We know how to get the right data, how to quantify it, and then how to add it into the price. Now, once you do that, you have a kind of interesting set of possibilities. You could have a consumer-facing option where you actually ask people at a grocery store to pay more, the higher the total kind of nexus of externalities is. But you could also have it as an internal auditing tool as a company, or I think maybe most 
exciting, you could use it to shape policy and regulation. If you know the true price of all of these goods, well, then a more rational system of taxes and subsidies suddenly becomes um, available. When looking at something like true price, and then I know that there's other designations that talk about, you know, fair trade, where it's understood or it's meant to communicate that those that are um, helping with either, you know, farming the goods or, um, you know, bringing the goods to market are provided a living wage. Who defines what a living wage means and does it truly represent a wage on which someone can survive? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I, I have a chapter in the book that really tries to argue for a more generous, more expansive definition of living wage. Because I, I think the reality is, um, if you talk to a lot of people in America trying to live on a living wage, they say, I'm not, I'm not able to live. So what we're currently calling a living wage, I think is a little bit misleading the terminology and it's, it's more accurately something like I'm barely not dying but if you want people to actually live you have to first say what are the basic elements of a decent life and this is a moral question a political question you know in the book I talk a little bit about Teddy Roosevelt's standard for a living wage which was even though you know this is a hundred years it's more than a hundred years ago it was more generous than the one used today by places like the MIT living wage calculator. So Roosevelt, he said, a living wage must secure the elements of a normal standard of living. And by normal standard of living, he, he included things like education costs, recreation, childcare, saving for old age, and a kind of cushion for you know a rainy day fund. If your kids are sick, if your car breaks down, you wanna have some savings. So today, living wages definitely do not enable that. Yeah, I like uh, a quote you share at the beginning of your book by Aristotle, Aristotle, excuse me. A city-state comes to be for the sake of life, but it continues to be for the sake of living well. And, you know, I think every, it's, it's, we have to be careful because my definition of living well as an American is very different than maybe somebody in Denmark's definition of living well, which is very different than somebody in Southeast Asia or South America. And so my question is, you know, how important is the role of culture in making these improvements that you're talking about? For instance, you, we were just talking about the true price model. You know, as an American, I, I, when I travel, I love talking to people about culture. And I love asking them to describe to me their culture. Um, and when, when people turn the tables and they ask me that question, I say, you know, it really comes down to th three things. Live free, uh, live free or die, he with the most toys wins, and better, faster, cheaper. Now, I want to make it clear those are not my values, but I think it does in many ways just describe the American culture and the American experience. Going back to your true price model, for a country that prides itself in better, faster, cheaper. Could a model like that work here? Do you think our culture would embrace that? Or is it only certain cultures that would accept that and, and, and seek that? You know, that's, that's a really fascinating question. And in the living wage chapter, I do get into some research on international cross-cultural comparisons about what constitutes a kind of acceptable standard of living. And you're absolutely right that 
people vary on this. There are going to be some human universals, things like access to clean drinking water, healthcare. Um, but then there, there are going to be things that reflect cultural circumstances. You know, do, do parents tend to live with adult children as they get older? Um, how many rooms is considered normal? All of these things are, are kind of up for grabs and cultural. And so if you're talking about something like true pricing or living wages, you, you have to pay attention to these cultural things. And there's some really interesting research on that that I, I get into to, to some extent in this chapter. You know, to your question on American culture, I, I think those are, those are good characterizations of pretty widespread values in this country. Um, and those values, they are in tension with, with living wages, you know, and with true pricing. I think if we, if we paid people better, um, goods might have to cost more or profits might need to be more limited for shareholders and those at the very top of the economic scale. So in some sense, there would be trade-offs. I think those, you know, those trade-offs are reasonable and desirable and would benefit a lot of people and also the natural world. You know, you don't really have the kind of standard lobbyists representing frogs, ecosystems, freshwater, aquifers, but these are all vitally important things, not just for humans, but for lots and lots of other species. So those values, they, they do kind of conflict with taking care of other humans and taking care of nature. And, and I think living wages and true price, those are sort of two key parts of our economic system that could help us reconsider really all of these hidden costs of doing business as usual. And that's where I'd like to go next, talking about the economic system. And perhaps it's the culture that we've bred through this where, you know, so much of our kind of economic philosophy overlooks ethical and political questions. And I know that there's a leading movement coming to reform economics education. So perhaps talk a little bit about, you know, maybe why economics never took those into consideration um, and, and who is at the forefront of starting to add those to the conversation? Absolutely, yeah. I, I start the book with a chapter on sort of the battle for the heart of the Economics 101 class. So what do undergraduates learn in Econ 101? There's a famous American economist from the 20th century, the middle years of that century, Paul Samuelson, and he remarked later in his career, I don't care who writes a nation's laws if I can write its economics textbooks. Uh, you know, Samuelson, his dream came true. He, he had written the economics textbooks, but I think that quote really speaks to the power of economics in particular as a, a, a shaper of common sense. What's considered possible? What's considered impossible? What's considered desirable? So. My reporting explored this, this kind of debate that's happening in a lot of economics departments about what should be taught and how it should be taught. And the, the folks who are spearheading a reform are introducing a free book, which is important because textbooks cost a lot. So their book is free. It's called Core. And Core is not only more affordable, but it's also much more kind of empirical and much more focused on the political and philosophical implications of economics. So instead of just kind of learning a lot of math, um, you're still going to learn a lot of math, but then you're going to kind of think about 
how those formal models are affecting real people, um, exactly the, the questions we've been discussing, right? What counts as a living wage? If we, if we calculate the cost of a good, are we paying attention to these externalities? Um, are we paying attention to some of the medical and mental health effects of widespread unemployment? These are all really rich questions and excluding these kinds of questions and debates from economics, I think, is, is one of the things that really concerns the people at core. And it's also, you know, to Paul Samuelson's point, it's important to get people thinking more broadly about how economics is going to, and their views on economics is going to shape their voting behavior, their choices as consumers, um, et cetera. Nick, I was, I was fortunate enough about a decade ago to interview one of the high political officers here in the state of Utah that was running for re-election. And for a variety of reasons, I was doing this in Salt Lake City. And as I was walking to the studio, I passed a bunch of homeless people. And so one of the questions I asked this individual is, you know, what can be done about the homelessness uh, in the country? And, you know, one of the things that starts people down that path uh, is unemployment. And, and this individual's answer to me left me feeling very empty and discouraged. And, and he said, you know, the poor will always be with us. Um, there's a quote in scripture, and that's what he quoted. Um, and I don't buy that. I don't buy that these big systemic problems have to be with us millennium after millennium. And in your book, you talk about a region in Austria where a job guarantee is being piloted. Can you talk to our audience about that program and how it's impacting long-term unemployment and maybe what I saw on my way to the studio that, day, that morning? Absolutely. Yeah, the program in Austria is really interesting and it's, it's definitely an encouraging experiment. The design is pretty innovative. So anyone who's been unemployed for a certain period of time becomes eligible to participate, and yet no one has to participate. So you can continue receiving unemployment benefits. What's, what's striking is that no one wanted to. So all of the people who were given that choice wanted to participate in the job guarantee. I think this reflects a few things. One is that they got to co-design their work. They didn't have total power to design it, but they got to have input so that it reflected their skills and their interests. You know, another thing that I think that reflects is just the psychological importance of, of work. A lot of people I spoke to emphasized the self-esteem benefits, the social and friendship networks that they gained through work and really just the time structure. I mean, they had something to do all day. They were no longer, you know, just watching TV or on their phone. Um, they felt this kind of renewed purpose and motivation. And the economists who are researching this study, you know, they reported all of these improvements across a, whole, a host of psychological dimensions. So the idea that a job provides much, much more than income, I think, is, is something we don't always remember. And, you know, I, I'm certainly open to the kind of universal basic income schemes, but job guarantees also have this community element. They help people do important work that needs to be done in a community and that maybe private markets are not 
efficiently allocating workers into certain areas. I mean, care work comes to mind, green transition work. There's all of this work that needs to be done. And so if it has psychological benefits, um, if, it's, if it's making important work in a community, if it's making that work get done more efficiently. Um, and then, you know, a final thing that's really encouraging out of Austria is that they were able to do this entire trial without it costing any more than the unemployment benefits would have cost anyway. So the argument that, oh, you, we can't afford this, um, it's, it's kind of preempted by the fact that this would have, this money would have been spent anyway, and now we get all these additional benefits. So I, I found it a really kind of encouraging case study. There's quite a bit that you continue to cover in the book, including Oslo's climate budgeting program and how venture capital funds are deploying new models that promote wealth creation, all of which we'd love to talk about but don't have the time today. We've been speaking with Nick Romeo. He's a journalist and the author of The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Mountain Money this morning. Thank you both. My pleasure. Now we're going to talk about sand. It's sometimes, believe it or not, it's called the new gold. And sand is the second most exploited natural resource, resource in the world right after fresh water. Catherine Gammon covered uh, this topic in her November 8th, 2023 article for Nautilus. The article is titled, Sand Mafia's Battle for the New Gold. Kate joins us this morning to share more about what she uncovered. Kate, welcome to Mountain Money. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So I think some people listening to us are scratching their head and thinking sand. You know, talk to us about sand. How much of it do we use and what's it used for and what is causing the increase of demand? Yeah, it feels like sand is something that's so ubiquitous. I mean, uh, you guys live in the mountains, but I live on, on the California coastline, and it, it, it just seems like sand is an endlessly abundant resource, um, which it is in some ways. Nature makes a ton of sand every year. It, it makes about 25 billion tons, but the problem is that we are using about twice that amount. We're using about 50 billion tons each year, and we use sand in everything in modern life everything from cement and concrete that are used to make you know houses and roads and buildings to glass um, windows and even the silicone chips in our laptops and phones they're all based on sand so this like tiny little um, thing that seems around us all the time is actually has these outsized effects on everything that we do in modern life and as you said you know you live along the california coast you can see you know miles of sand every which way you look is all sand created equal? It's actually not. Um, when I was researching this, I was very surprised to learn sand is actually like a size of rock. It's not actually like the type of, um, it, it just denotes like the size of the particle. So sand can be made of many different types of rock. And um, the, the type of sand that is the most important when it comes to making these chips and concrete and roads and everything is silica. And that's most often found in rivers, not actually um, along our coastlines. So um, river sand tends to be very, very important when we talk about global trade and the illegal um, mining of sand. 
I'm learning a lot already. So let's 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 keep going with this. Now I want to switch gears and and, and talk about uh, the criminal activity. Um, before I go there, I just want to share with folks when we go and we buy our avocados at the grocery store. One of one of the biggest sources of extortion in Mexico and Colombia and big avocado growing uh, ranches is avocado. So there's there's this criminal activity that my co-host here has given me a weird look. There's this criminal activity that takes place in any industry that's highly profitable. Uh, And avocados is one that happens in South America. Talk to us about how this happens in in the world of sand. Why, Why is it an attractive target for the mafia and why is it an easy target for the mafia? Yeah, it's it's so interesting that you bring up avocados because this is another thing we don't, you know, we use all the time and, and probably don't think about where this comes from. But sand is so easy to mine. It is the second largest form of mining in terms of extraction across the world. And um, the places with sort of like poor local governance and, and where corruption is rife, it is very easy to, say, park a barge above a river and literally start sucking up the, um, the the river basin, um, all of the sand can just come up on the barge. And if any authorities arrive, they can just move that boat down the river with all of that sand intact. Um, so it's a it's a very attractive way to make money. And it is making a lot of money um, for these criminal um, groups in different countries. So this often happens in illegal operations in Cambodia, Kenya, Nigeria, and India. And in India in particular, um, sand mining is run by mafias and almost all of the sand extracted there is illegally extracted. So almost all sand mining operations are illegal. Why is that? Um, yeah, because it is hard to get sort of the ecological permits to do this legally. And there's a huge demand for building in these places. So people want homes, people want roads, people want to make, um, you know, the, the parts of modern life that, that everyone else has. Um, and it, again, it's really easy uh, for criminal operators to sort of find ways around um so there are there are sustainable sand operations. They just cost a bit more. Um, and I think that the willingness to pay within these markets um, isn't always there to do it the right way. And it's very easy to do it in a shady way. You know, and as long as there's demand for the shady way produced sand, there'll be people figuring out how to do it. And it reminds me of fair priced coffee. Is there a label on, you know, legally produced sand or, you know, how, how do we rate you? We talk about uh, people, I mean, hundreds of people, thousands of people probably in your article, you say hundreds, but it's probably thousands of people are being murdered um, because of this. Is there a way to signal to the, uh, to the buyers that, hey, this is, this is sand produced the wrong way versus sand that's produced the right way? Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, there isn't right now, but I think that there could be in the future a way to label bags of sand. I mean, one of the problems when you compare it to something like coffee, um, you know, coffee has a lot of uh, 
wealth sort of packed into a small pack. You think of like a bag of coffee, mm -hmm. which sells for what? $15, $20 a pound. Um, sand is, is so much cheaper than that. And there's so much of it that it is sort of easy to, um, to black market, move it around, you know, you could slap a label on it. I wonder in the future if there's a way to sort of etch onto that bag of sand or even onto those grains of sand, something that says, hey, this was produced in a, in a, um, in a sustainable or, or uh, mined in a sustainable way. I, I think it would be really interesting to explore in the future as these, you know, as countries sort of um, try to find new ways to govern this and, and curb this illegal activity. We talked about that, you know, people's lives have been at stake due to this illegal activity. And as I was reading your other your article and other information about this, even reporters who have gone in to report on this have had their lives threatened. One, how did you find about this? How did you find out about this topic to write about? And two, did, were you ever concerned about your own safety as you were reporting on this? Yeah, there's some very brave journalists around the world that have been covering um, the true impact of sand extraction in their local communities. And I just want to shine a light on, on how important local journalism is. Um, I found out about this um, through one of my editors who'd seen a headline that there was a massive shootout um, between you know, two rival gangs fighting over territory in India um, in the illegal sand binding trade. And, and then it clicked a, a, a light bulb for me because one of my... Um, journalism colleagues named Vince Beiser wrote a, a beautiful book called The World in a Grain, which is about the history and future of sand. And absolutely, if you're interested in more on this topic, um, this is a great resource to go to. And um, I, you know, I was mostly writing from more of the science and, and global policy side of things. So I wasn't worried for my own safety. But as you said, there have been many local journalists um, that have been threatened or killed. There's, there was in one extreme case, a journalist was burnt to death in India for his consistent reporting on um, sand mining activity. And um, yeah, we just need more people to sort of keep on this and, and to keep talking about these impacts because it's not just the impacts on people who are often um, being mistreated in these illegal mining activities. They have no labor rights. They're being worked really hard in very unsafe conditions, but there's also very severe ecological impacts to mining in this way. Sucking up all that sand from the rivers, as I was describing, then also sucks up the, the little plants and the animals that are living there. It degrades the, the rivers so that, um, you know, uh, river dolphins and, and fish um, end up dying too. It also makes it really cloudy. So even upstream or downstream from where these operations are taking place, there's no life. And it degrades the quality of the water, which local people are using for drinking water. So it has all of these effects around um, the communities where these happen. It's not simply about the sand. It's about the people and the ecosystems as well. So, Kate, a, a couple things. One is I'm, I'm struck, you know, we're, you're our second guest this morning, and our, our first guest was a author by the name of Nick Romeo, and, and he wrote a book in, uh, about making our economies around the world more, in his view, just. And he talks about this concept of true price. And I'm just struck, you know, you hear these stories about people being worked unfairly, not being paid a livable wage, and for the want of paying 10 cents more, uh, in the case of grapes here in the United States, um, at the grocery store, you know, people could have a very different life if we were willing to pay 10 cents more. Um, 
There's just so many things uh, that we do that I think if, if the consumer had a way to cause action, they would. And so your article raised awareness. What are you hoping the next step is? Now that, now that you've raised the awareness, what, do you, what are you hoping happens next? Yeah, I hope that people from different countries and different governments and, and different construction groups will come together and try to figure out a way to do this ethically and sustainably. And I agree with you that consumers are willing to pay a little bit more for goods and items that aren't tainted by, um, you know, the, the literal blood or um, the, the livelihoods of people who are producing them. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist and, and not a policy expert. So I, 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 I hope that, um, that and there are nonprofits working on this. There are um, sort of academic groups studying this. My hope is that um, people will, will come together in a way that can affect real action in the world. You know, many societal norms have been changed by journalists though, right? I mean, the first thing is just, yeah letting the public know. I mean, I remember as a fifth grader being forced uh, to read Upton Sinclair's book uh, and just seeing how the, that impacted the meatpacking industry. And as a vegan today, <laughs> myself, uh, you know, these, uh, the power of the journalist. I do this radio show part-time. I'm not a full-time journalist, but I'm surrounded at this radio station by full-time journalists. And it's 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 a commitment to making the world a better place and and to getting the word out there so you know on this subject is sad it's, it's frankly something i had absolutely no idea and when allison mentioned it to me i'm like really i you know i i you think of these high profit margin products that crime criminals are involved with you know the first that comes to mind is illegal drugs and then you think of sand it's like how could you get any more of a commodity? And yet the, the dirty un underbelly of the world seems to be hiding around every corner. So thank I think that's exactly right. The dirty underbelly of the world is maybe what, what, what brings us all together. <laughs> like, that's what we have to attack first. Okay, well, let me, uh, let me say thank you for, for, for your audience for writing this article and for raising my awareness, Allison's awareness in the community here in Park City, Summit County, and Wasatch County. We appreciate you being our guest this morning. We've been speaking with Kate Gammon. She is the journalist that wrote the article, Is Sand the New Gold? Kate, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. M.Sports Arena provides advanced technology to train and everyone just like professional athletes train. Without lift lines and parking, athletes can compete in a day's worth of race training in about, they say, 20 minutes. Not just for ski racers and professional athletes, but for anyone that wants to improve their skiing or snowboarding skills when snow's available and when snow's not available and without the risk of injury. If, for those folks, the simulator might be a good solution for you. We've got the owners with us this morning, Abby Flack and Parker Nostrand the head ski and snowboard simulator coaches. They're gonna join us today and they're gonna talk about this unique business here in Park City. Welcome. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Yeah, uh, thanks for having us. 
Uh, this is Abby, and last time we were on the radio with you, we hadn't even opened our business. It was for a pledge drive about a year ago, so it's really exciting to be back now on this show uh, to talk a little bit about how where we've come in the last year and what we have available to uh, you know people who come visit and um, our locals here in town. Okay, so I mentioned it's a unique business. But if you could pick one town in the entire world to base this business, it'd probably be here. So good job on, on location selection. Uh, talk to us about this technology. What's, what's involved and in, in how are people compressing the amount of time it would normally take? Obviously, they're not sitting on, a, on a, a chairlift and stuff like that. But within the training itself, talk to us about how that saves people time. So I'm going to have Parker, who's uh, one of our head coaches, actually talk about that because he's the one who helps these uh, people do so much in so little time. Yeah, thanks. So this is Parker here. I'm the head coach at Sim Sports, And we combine two types of technology at the Sim Sports Arena to create a simulated environment for our athletes. So our athletes can expect a curved borderless screen in front of them. And so using three projectors, they're seamlessly overlapped to display a virtual slope. Using Cineramic technology, the athlete moves from side to side along a track and their movements are integrated into the display. As the athlete moves, the screen adjusts to create the feeling of skiing and snowboarding on the real slope. So basically, they can um, feel like they're on the snow when they're on the simulator, but be in a controlled environment and um, boost their confidence in the meantime. So this is a little bit different than me being on like, you know, um, uh, you know, my bike at home and I've got a, in front of me the projection of the TV and I'm riding around in France. Like this is completely different than that. Like this is helping you experience the G-forces. This is using the actual movement that you do on the slopes, correct? Correct. So we actually uh, recommend that people bring their own ski boots in. So you're in your own equipment. You are locked into a platform that um, you move a massive, like 24 foot long platform. And um, you move side to side laterally. And the machine, the higher you edge and the more aggressive you are, the more aggressive it reacts to you. So uh, you speed up on the machine and you're really getting edge to edge to edge we're able to um, put up gates simulate different courses our coaches work uh, directly with the athlete there's always a coach there with them giving them immediate feedback on changes to their boots changes to their body positioning balancing uh, which is easy easier to do in a controlled environment than it is on the slopes when a coach is skiing down next to you trying to give you feedback and your fingers are cold <laughs> sort of thing so it's a very yeah it's a very inefficient learning environment i, I used to work uh, part-time a couple a uh, handful of weekends uh, 12 days a year at one of the local ski resorts as a ski instructor uh, and i can tell you it's a very inefficient system um, now, what, what really interests me is you guys are targeting the elite athlete. You know, Allison, you were mentioning being on, on uh, your indoor cycle and, and getting in a workout. You know, I think it's pretty easy to simulate for the average person here that skis seven days, the average tourist that comes here in seven. But the audience here and your target audience, you know, really fine-tuning it and how do I get my 
the edge angle of my ski up another two degrees, which would make the difference between me winning and being on the platform, uh, the, the victory platform, whatever, the metal platform, and not. I'm shocked that, that your system is sophisticated enough that it can help people with that. So talk to, talk to us about how, how can you help people fine-tune at that level? Yeah, definitely. So what I find about the machines to be so efficient, well, one, it's not just for skiers, it is for snowboarders as well. But what the machine gets you to be comfortable with is the feeling of actually carving on the slope. So uh, a lot of ski instructors out there don't speak to how to truly carve and what needs to happen inside your boots, with your knees, with your shoulders. And when you're on the simulator, all of those um, reactions that you need to make and all those adjustments that the coach mentions, they, it all happens in real time. So you're able to make a lot of adjustments and improvements with yourself in a very short period of time. So and they can feel that ski shaping the turn for them as opposed to them just sliding that ski along, which is what a lot of the tourists that come visit us do. Exactly. So the main thing that skiers and snowboarders will feel and the main thing that they can find that's similar on the slopes is this, the sensations happening inside their boots. So what's happening at the bottom of their feet? What's happening with their shins? Where is their chest position? Is it over their heels or is it over their toes? And we translate that, those feelings inside your boot to what will this do to the ski or snowboard underneath you? And that's how people are able to draw the connection and really make rapid, rapid improvements. So I want to talk about that rapid piece because on your website, it talks about, you know, get in a, a full days of training in 20 minutes. We're not talking about like 10 minute abs here, right? Like, can we talk, <laughs> let's just walk through a little bit as far as how that equates to less time being on the simulator than it would being on the slope. So, I mean, first off, you don't have to wait in traffic and then in lift lines and put on your gear, that sort of thing. So the amount of time that is spent there is so finite in comparison to a day on the slopes. In addition to that, you're in constant movement, somewhat like a cardio workout until you are tired and the coach identifies that, you know, you're not, no longer improving uh, because your legs are getting tired, but you can get hundreds of turns in in minutes i mean it's and there is the ability within the technology there's an app and you'd create an account so people can track their workouts from day to day they can see their improvements they can see what their goals are they can set goals for themselves we have the ability to change the snow conditions the feel on, you know, the feel underneath the skis. So when the snow starts melting outside, we'll have people come in and they'll want to ski slush just to, you know, keep their, get themselves ready. We are able to um, simulate ruts in a course. So, uh, you know, as athletes are training, there's a little bit of um, resistance that it throws back, like, it, like you're hitting a rut and you have the ability to like set goals within the computerized system within your account that you're like working with your coach on. But the it sounds very intense. There's also just an endless slope, like endless slope, infinite possibilities where you can say, I just want to, I just want to free ski. I just want to see how fast I can go. I just want like huge turns, carving, that sort of thing. And you can then decide, oh no, I, I want to ski tight gates. We're going to, you know, change the periods and the widths between the gates. And, you know, it really is what the person is looking to kind of work on and to be able to come in with just that goal and to create, this is the type of course that I want. 
Well, and I would assume too, also you're looking at being able to get unlimited vertical. Cause when you talk about different resorts, you have what's the longest, you know, um, run that you can take on that. And like Park City, you can go from like bottom to top, but it's not all fun and it's not all at like a downhill, correct? you know, uh, slope. So I suppose that's another aspect of it as well. Yeah. And it really is. I mean, it's one of those where I look at the coaches working with everybody from beginners to high level athletes and that muscle memory, how they can tweak one little change. And then the person repetitively gets in 200 turns immediately after making that one shift they then go out onto the snow and their body is accustomed to that feeling. So they go out with that change being made. Well, and one of the things, you know, I've got two daughters and they went up through the, the ski programs here and it was fun to watch them. But at some point, one of the things that differentiates the people that are gonna go to the next level versus the people that are gonna go out, my family, go out on the weekend, enjoy the day, but we, you know, we're never gonna be on the podium, right? What differentiates those folks are the people that are willing to ski at 99% of their capabilities or 110 and 100. And I was never willing to do that, nor were my girls, because the risk of injury is so high. So if you can do that on a simulator without worrying about doing something when you're going really fast, that's going to blow out your knee and, and end your career. I, I could see where that would really have a, a, a strong appeal. So, all right, you've sold me on this. And, and Allison knows at the beginning, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be really curious about this. So I can, I can see not only that, but as a ski instructor, when you're teaching, so you need the, the right slope and then you need the right crowd conditions, which really means nobody else there, ideally. Um, and how often do you really have that? So I can see where this is a really powerful solution. Talk to our audience about what does this cost? What kind of packages do you offer? Oh, I, I would love to speak to that. <laughs> um, so we, uh, we're constantly changing as the environment in Park City changes. About every three months, you know, there's a whole new crew of people who arrive. There's a whole new mentality of what people are looking for. So we have constant pricing. Um, a session is $85 for an hour. And Parker can kind of talk a little bit about it's not just the simulator. We also have other workout capabilities within that hour. We have coaches that will also talk to athletes about their goals. The $85 an hour includes your coach? Yes, wow. it, the $85 an hour gets you a pr private with a coach. Uh, you can certainly bring in friends and you know share that time as well, realizing that you'll be doing it within the hour. I we have a friend that was visiting here from out of town. We won't mention the resort, but he dropped $320 for one day of skiing, his rentals and his lessons. And I was like, wow. Yes. Uh, I had no idea, you know, we're spoiled here. I had no idea it was actually that expensive. It is for one, of one the, day. It is one of the things that I really think uh, people, when they think about our business, it not to diminish the private lessons that you get on the snow because those are also so important, but you can, it is so cost effective to come to sim sports because you're getting that private lesson. You're getting that one-on-one -on -one with a coach who's helping you feel comfortable in your equipment, um, your balance, everything. And it's going to make you a better skier the next time you go out on the snow. I, I would love to have an ear into every tourist that comes to town to say, hey, bring your kids the night before ski school 
to Sim Sports. Spend the $85, get them in their ski boots, have them feel comfortable. You're not in the freezing cold standing outside a ski school with a million other kids. Can people, could first-timers use your facilities we, too? Absolutely. It is a, we have had six-year-olds on the machine for over an hour. We had a 96-year-old's birthday party. So it is, well, I like to say, six to 96. Somebody, we work really closely with YSA, the Get Out and Play programs from the school. We have kids who are bused to us who have never put on ski boots before. So we can go from never evers all the way up to, I mean, there are uh, FIS athletes that come in and train on our machines as well. So it really does run the whole entire gamut. Did did you see this business or this type of um, service provided somewhere else? Or have you built this just upon kind of the knowledge and background you have? So uh, one of the questions I was expecting to get is like, where else can you do this in the world? And the reality is, before Sim Sports, there is one of these machines in Park City. It's at the center of excellence, and it is only available to our U.S. ski team athletes. So we saw that, and we saw that it is a machine that can have anybody on it. So why wouldn't we make it available to everybody, you know, from Snow Basin all the way down to Salt Lake City, tourists coming in town? It is. Um, it, it was one of those things. We've seen it do great things with our U.S. ski team. They rehab on it. They do equipment checks on it. And this was one of those things where why wouldn't we take something that's so successful at that level knowing that anybody can get on it in, in, a, in an environment and make it available to everybody. Okay. And, and it uh, totally celebrates like Park City's like ski legacy, I think. It's a great match. Uh, unfortunately, we could talk skiing all day, but we <laughs> do have to wrap. Uh, it's Sim Sports. It's here. It's here in Park City. It's $85 an hour. And be sure to sign up now because when this uh, interviews over I'm gonna tell Abby that she should raise her prices because well, I and follow us on Instagram and look at our website because we are constantly running deals we have a deal right now where for four months it's $500 unlimited training come okay. in as much as you want you've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money if you like Mountain Money let us know please leave a review